0: These are the tribulations of Paulette. (music) Apologies for too much information, but Mike O'Neill, my gynecologist, must be consulted immediately because I'm getting two periods a month. Mike says I need an endometrial biopsy. Excellent news. Not many gals our age admit it, but we're all in the same boat. Don't go anywhere unprepared, Dr. Mike cautions. I hark back to the face of my son and caddy, TJ, succumbing to an explosion of loose Tampax from my golf bag when I took a mulligan after hooking a drive into a frog pond last summer. This non-stop bleeding is putting a real kink into the nearly non-existent sex life I have with Dave. On the odd occasion when he gets in the mood, I have to disclaim my circumstances. Well, we could still do it, I say encouragingly. Maybe sex will make it stop. You better find out what's wrong with you first, he says, and he rolls away. At least the intruder doesn't faint at the sight of blood. Meanwhile, there isn't enough time in the day to complete one-tenth of the tasks necessary to keep everything running smoothly at home. Every time I turn around, somebody needs longer pants, new sneakers, eyeglasses, and a haircut, including me. I ricochet back and forth across Route 9 between discount stores, malls, and CVS like a steel ball in an arcade game. Dolly is texting me non-stop with Bunyan updates. Ted has been emailing me about our class reunion, and I've promised my 90-year-old girlfriend, Bertie, that I'll visit her today. Odds are that Bertie has less overall time to wait for me than anyone else, so she wins. Even though I openly acknowledge that I am deep in the throes of a midlife crisis, there is nothing I can do about it, because aside from the occasional trip to the gym, there's no time to do anything at all for myself. One of my sons needs a birthday present for a pal, so I do a Barnes & Noble flyby before I head to Bertie's. The children's section is empty, except for an earnest-faced young woman wearing a green vest. She peers at me through thick glasses. I'm looking for a book called Dare the Wind, and I have only five minutes, I tell her. I follow her from bookcase to bookcase as she peruses the shelves on my behalf. She's very, very nice, but it's quite clear that she has a severe disability. Nevertheless, I applaud all efforts to hire the handicapped, and I'm particularly overjoyed to see any semblance of a salesperson in Barnes & Noble. I follow this gal who is wearing a name tag that says Shelly for several minutes. She's very polite and answers all my questions with a solid yes or no, but we can't find the book. There isn't another salesperson in sight. Take me to the computer, I say. I'll help you. We can figure it out together. Shelley shakes her head and says she can't touch the computer. Oh, come on now, I tell her. Come over here. Let's take a quick look. Of course you can touch the computer. I lead Shelley to the register area, and as I do, I hear a woman's voice calling, Shelly? "Shelley, Shelley." from the other side of the store. "'Oh, is that your boss?' I ask Shelley. She goes wide-eyed. "'That's Linda,' Shelley tells me. "'I'm over here, Linda!' she yells back. "'Quick, before she comes, let's look up that book,' I say. "'Linda will be very proud that you found it for me.' I push a reluctant Shelley behind the counter and step in beside her. "'Since we don't have the author's last name,' I say, "'we can just type in the title.' Shelley says a voice. "'Oh, my goodness, what are you doing?' This must be Linda, just coming around the corner now, with four or five other disabled gals in tow, all wearing name tags. Wow, I think, Barnes & Noble is really staffing up. Shelley smiles. Hi Linda, she says. Then Shelley turns to me and says, I gotta go now. Wait, I say, where are you going? I gotta go with Linda, says Shelley. Linda looks at me, perplexed, takes Shelley's hand and leads her out from behind the register. As they pass by, I notice that the small print on Shelley's name tag does not say Barnes & Noble, but rather Horizon House. I feel badly about being so bossy to Shelley, and then I remember that I have a small box of chocolates in my bag that I was going to bring to Bertie. Wait, Shelley, I say running after her, I want to thank you for helping me. And as I reach for the chocolates, 40 Tampax self-launch from my handbag, covering the floor around me. Shelley is delighted and picks one up. Thank you, she says. I have my period, too! And she skips away. An hour later, I drop by to see Bertie and Howard, my elderly neighbors. Bertie greets me at the door with a troubled face. Come with me, she says, and she walks me over to an antique birdcage. Bertie has this thing where she saves old flower arrangements. The birdcage is filled with dried flowers, but nestled in the middle of it rests a huge, white, round, feathery form. This bothers me, she says. I don't know where it came from. I peer at the form, which does indeed look like a strange sort of cocoon. I don't want to get too close to it. I ask Howard to get me the fireplace poker, and I walk toward the cocoon, holding the poker like a lance. I feel a little nervous because this mystery cocoon could be something in a larval stage that has been nesting here for a while. This could end up horrifically. Bertie and Howard strangled alive in their beds by some...thing. My first instinct is to pierce it, but then I stop, thinking that this could be a giant wasp nest and bees will engulf us. We've got to get this outside, I tell them. I instruct Howard to get us all gloves and scarves to cover our faces. We open the birdcage and with great care, I loosen the dried flowers that have attached themselves to the white form using a pair of barbecue tongs. Birdie stands to the side holding a can of Raid just in case. Howard opens the sliding door and as I step out into the backyard holding the mystery form at arm's length, a familiar face in a chef's jacket runs by me 90 miles an hour, headed toward the woods behind the house. Hot on the heels of said chef are several other individuals, one of whom is Dolly, another of whom is Bunyan. Dolly is screaming, Jason, stop, at the top of her lungs, just as Jason, Dolly's celebrity chef ex-husband and People Magazine's sexiest man alive runner-up, disappears into the trees. Bunyan is completely out of breath "'and throws himself down on the ground "'between Bertie and Howard. "'He sees the cocoon. "'What do you got there?' "'And he grabs it, tossing it gently into the air. "'It bobs off his head. "'He giggles and blows it back up in the air again. "'No bugs or bees are coming out of it, "'and I realize suddenly that it is nothing more "'than an exploded milkweed "'from one of Bertie's arrangements. "'I don't know why the heck I was so afraid.' Hanging out of wrappers in my handbag are 40 loose tampons that look just like it. music for this podcast is written and performed by the very talented Mr. Eric Fontana. You're still so near. They both pass eventually. And I can't understand. Next, don't do me like that. Till then, ta ta. I know have to justify the way I live or how I die. Well, only